sometimes you just need to touch grass, literally and figuratively. And we recommend you bring books. Tell the bibliologists at Tailored Book Recommendations about what you love and what you don't and what you want to read this summer on your outdoor adventures. You can get your recommendations via email or receive hardcovers in the mail. And TBR has plans for every budget. This summer, touch grass and bring books. You pack the bags, we pick the books. Visit mytbr.co to sign up today. It only takes a few minutes. That's mytbr.co. Welcome to the Book Riot Podcast. I'm Rebecca Shinsky. Jeff is out this week, so I am joined by Jen Northington. You might know her from our SFF Yeah podcast or the now defunct but very beloved Get Booked podcast <laughs> and many appearances here on the Book Riot Show. Jen, indeed. thank you for being with us. Hello. Always delightful. I feel like I always fill in for you and I'm always talking to Jeff. So it's nice to switch it up That's a little bit. That's true. I hardly ever get to podcast with you. Although no. uh, old heads know that even before Book Riot existed, we hosted a book podcast together <laughs> called right. Book Rageous for a few years. So this is just a nice throwback for us. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, we have some news. We're going to do about half an hour of news. We'll see where we get. And then in the second half of the show, Kelly Jensen is going to join me for a deep dive into the audiobook production of Britney Spears's memoir, The Woman and Me, which I'm not saying it's the publishing event of the year, but I'm not not saying that at this point. Yeah, I can't wait to hear the two of you talk about it. So, you know, nobody else would know this, but inside of the staff Slack, there has been like a lot of knowledge and information dropped over the past week by both Rebecca and Kelly about like the lead up to this and like theories and then actual details from the book. And I am so delighted um, because it means that I just get to know everything without having to work for it. And I'm really excited to listen to this discussion. It is really something. I'm sure that Kelly and I will get to it. But I also will just say for folks who are listening, whether you're interested in the Britney memoir or not, it's being narrated by Michelle Williams. And there's a moment mm. where Britney is describing being, you know, walking around New York City back in the days when she was dating Justin Timberlake. And like the big like pendant chains that rappers were wearing were the thing. And mm. Justin Timberlake has one and they pass Genuine on the sidewalk, who also has a big pendant. And Justin Timberlake greets Genuine in a very enthusiastic and embarrassing fashion. And you get to hear Michelle Williams impersonate Britney Spears's description of Justin Timberlake greeting Genuine. <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> Which I will find a link and put it in the show notes because I know that audio excerpt it's making. It's, I rewound and listened to it three times. It might be one of those things <laughs> where, like, maybe I will bookmark that section. And when I'm having a bad day, I'm just going to listen to Michelle Williams go, oh, yeah, faux shiz, faux shiz. Oh, no. Amazing. <laughs> it's really incredible. Yes, you do need to share that audio <laughs> excerpt with all of us. Well, before we get into the news, we'll take a quick break for our sponsor. Sometimes you just need to touch grass, literally and figuratively. And we recommend you bring books. Tell the bibliologists at Tailored Book Recommendations about what you love and what you don't and what you want to read this summer on your outdoor adventures. You can get your recommendations via email or receive hardcovers in the mail. And TBR has plans for every budget. 
This summer, touch grass and bring books. You pack the bags, we pick the books. Visit mytbr.co to sign up today. It only takes a few minutes. That's mytbr.co. Okay, Jen. It's not really fair to start off this way, but I'm in charge this week, so I'm just taking a victory lap. (laughs) I nailed the Oprah pick. (laughs) Yes, you did. You did. And if you are, you know, maybe a couple weeks behind on the show, Oprah's new pick, it's her 103rd book club selection, is Jesmyn Ward's new novel, Let Us Descend, which tells the story of a young enslaved woman who is separated from her mother and sold south and reimagines the landscape of slavery in America through the lens of something that draws on Dante's Inferno. Mm. This is all I know so far. I haven't started it yet, um, but Jeff and I will be book clubbing our way through it for the book, uh, the book Riot Patreon in a couple of weeks. So if you're interested in that, you can check out that and other fun stuff we do at patreon.com slash book podcast. But this book was supposed to come out October 3rd, like right up until the beginning of the season. It was listed as an October 3rd new release. And then all of a sudden, the date was changed to October 24th. There were no Mm. press releases about the date change. It was just like quietly shifted. And I was like, "Mm." Mm. only Oprah gets a book with the profile (laughs) of Jasmine Ward changed, you know, three weeks (laughs) with three weeks. Truly. So I'm just here to be congratulated. Well, I'm delighted to offer you congratulations. (laughs) Take that victory lap. You deserve it. You nailed it. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) We should have you on this show more often. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just here to cheerlead you on. Um, I know that you've been following the next story as closely as I have. And last last week, Jeff and I talked about the Scholastic Book Fair's solution uh, mm -hmm, to the fact that many of the states where they operate book fairs have book bans in place that would have, in their reading, put teachers and librarians at risk if Scholastic just included books that address race and LGBTQ issues with all the standard book fair materials. So they had created a separate separate collection, very ironically named the Share Every Story, Celebrate Every Voice (sighs) collection. And it was going to be opt-in to have it included. So the standard would have been these books would just not come to your school's book fair. Um, After more than a month of outcry, Scholastic has responded. Jen, what is your take here? Well, I mean, firstly, every time this subject comes up, which is regularly, I have like I can feel my blood pressure mm-hmm. skyrocketing, and I have to take some deep breaths and make sounds. Um, yeah, I, I mean, Kelly, we are so lucky to have we Kelly. We really Jensen. are. I, she is on top of all of this. She is winning very deserved awards and accolades for her coverage of the censorship issues. Um, and she breaks this down so well. You have linked uh, to her piece in the deep di- or in literary activism, excuse me, um, on the statement uh, that Scholastic made and then why this is really just marketing as opposed to solutions and... I am so grateful for Kelly's perspective because it is so complicated. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's true, right, that all of these states are enacting this, like, unenforceable legislation 
Like it's so un- most of this legislation is so unclear. I've read some of mm-hmm. it. It's so unclear. It is. Like it's so open to interpretation. And it just means that it is both unenforceable and overenforceable, right? So like you could mm-hmm. use it for any purpose that you wanted functionally if you felt like it and you were a legislator in that state. Um and so that does complicate. I mean, of course, it complicates book fairs. Of course, it does. Right. And it's also true. I'm sure that Scholastic was getting emails from teachers and librarians being like, how are you approaching this? But then, of course, obviously, their solution was very bad um, and ill-considered. <laughs> so, you know, now they're like, just kidding. Uh, we will not do that anymore. And we will totally find a way to get these books to their distribution channels. But they don't say how. Because they don't know right. how. They don't know how yet. And I'm, yeah. my blood pressure is also up. I feel like we need to just have like high blood pressure alerts on these segments yeah. of the podcast. Truly. Because uh, it is maddening. I don't have a good solution to this either, though. So I'm really trying to hold that most generous of interpretations as a possibility mm. that like this is an impossible bind and it is intentionally impossible all the language in the legislation is vague for you know reasons of utility to the people who want to have as much flexibility and leeway as possible to take books out of schools and to block these kinds of stories from being shared so i both share the frustration of like this statement doesn't actually say anything it it says mm-hmm. we realize mm-hmm. that was a bad idea we're going to walk it back um that mm-hmm. the plan will be discontinued effective january which is their next book fair season yeah. and for the remaining fairs of this fall uh, school year the book fairs are working on a pivot plan and it does say that we're working on a pivot mm-hmm. plan as we speak i don't think you come up with a good plan like that for something like this quickly And I hope that they have a better one by the time January rolls around. Though, honestly, I don't know what they're supposed to do. Well, well, right. I mean, truly, the only way to deal with this is through lawsuits. I mean, I think Kelly says this and other, you know, several authors, authors, guilds, Mm -hmm. you know, publishing companies are suing. Yeah, PRH is, uh, I mean, lawsuit, legal action is the only way to fight legislation. Like, literally, (laughs) that's the way you do it. Like, this is one of those cases where you have to fight fire with fire if you want, if you are a company, right? There's lots of other things um, that people can and will do around this. um, And a lot of grassroots initiatives, you know, doing what they can. But like, if you're a company and you're bound by, you know, fiduciary responsibility Mm -hmm. and stakeholders and blah, 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 blah. Like legal action is the thing you need to do. And so far we haven't seen that from them. And we've also seen some really poor editorial choices from them. Oh, in the past year about like trying to take this like soft censorship approach to things so you know i don't know when they i i would love to see them join some of these class action lawsuits is what i would like yeah i think you're right i think that that's really the only solid option available to them it won't move quickly so the question there will be what will they do with these book fairs in the meantime presumably while the law figures out what it's going to (laughs) do about this stuff while these court cases get worked out. It's been making me think a lot about um, this quote that I've been seeing passed around the internet this week by Timothy Snyder, who's talking about how to resist authoritarianism. And he says, do not obey in advance. And Mm -hmm. I saw someone connect this directly to Scholastic. I think there are, you know, just myriad things 
things that could be connected to um, in our landscape and the world in general right now. But that is, I think, really what this looked like. It was, I don't think Scholastic intended to be like complying with authoritarianism in advance, mm. but that's like, it's scary to think that yeah. you might get sued. It's really scary. Mm-hmm. I believe that they were scared to think they might be putting educators in yes. a legally vulnerable position or like really in a physically vulnerable position. Yes. We know that teachers yes. and librarians have been attacked and harassed. Mm-hmm. So I've, I have so much sympathy for the fear that must be driving it. But when it results in the behavior of like, well, then we're yes. just basically going to give in and let them win by segregating these books mm-hmm. um, rather than starting with the legal action. Um, yeah. One of the last sentences of this statement from Ellie Berger, who is the president of Scholastic Trade Publishing, uh, does st- say, we pledge to stand with you as we redouble our efforts to combat the laws restricting children's access to books. And mm-hmm. a close reading of that would make me think that perhaps they are now looking at ways to get involved in the legal action. I hope so. Me too. Yeah. May their efforts succeed. Um it's such a complicated, like, it feels like a win mm-hmm. that Scholastic has walked this back. And it is a win of sorts, but it's a real, like, right. tiny battle in a big war. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really tricky one. Yeah, we we need the small wins, but we are so far from the big win. Right. Yes, that's a great way to put it. Um, another small win, and this is one I really do want to celebrate, is if you are in mm. Indianapolis, you have a new bookstore. It's called Loudmouth, and it is owned by Leah Johnson. She is a Black woman. She is a queer person. She is the author of award-winning YA fiction, and she has opened Loudmouth books specifically to highlight banned books and marginalized authors. Um, there was a great piece about her profile in The Advocate this week. Um There's not like a whole lot to say about this effort other than like, you go, Leah Johnson, may her efforts succeed. Mm. (laughs) Um, But really wanted to shout this out for our listeners this week. Yeah, I love that the name of this bookstore is Loudmouth. Mm -hmm. Like, that's just fantastic. Um, And it like, you know, forever is so frustrating to me that, you know, you should see me in a crown, which is her book that won the Stonewall Award is like, you know, one of these books that's getting classified as obscene, which is you know ridiculous. Um, and uh, I just I mean, I feel like we have to acknowledge that, you know, a person like she exists at the intersection of multiple marginalizations and she's like she's she's got here making a store so that people can still get uh access to these books and that takes so much strength and Mm -hmm. um willingness to like be on the front lines of this and i super appreciate that and i hope that we can all support the folks who are out there doing this and join them Yeah, they do have a website for Loudmouth Books and an online storefront that runs through bookshop.org. So whether you're in Indianapolis or not, you can support their efforts. I kept thinking as I was reading this, like Indiana, home state of Mike Pence, not a super (laughs) friendly place um, to be doing work like this. Uh, And Mm -hmm. this is a real, like, literally put your body on the line effort from Mm -hmm. a person who has been targeted both individually and had her work targeted um, for this kind of harassment and banning. So just all the applause for Leah Johnson. We are rooting for you. And folks, if you get a chance to visit and you want to tell us about it, please email us at podcast Mm -hmm. at bookriot.com and tell us all about Loudmouth. Yes. 
All right, Jen, we have some uh, juicier <laughs> stuff we can get into <laughs> on the, yeah. second, the second half of our time together. But first, let's take another sponsor break. Okay. TikTok is at it again. <laughs> Although this time I feel like TikTok did the good work. Like last time we had to do a big mm-hmm. book talk segment on here. Uh, I had to enjoy well I got to enjoy Jeff trying to find a way to talk about hockey (laughs) romance and some people's really questionable behavior just thinking (laughs) and that was a that was like book talkers gone wild but here it seems book talk has tried to or has has effectively reined in an author who maybe took it a little bit too far do you want to tell me what happened uh, yeah, so I, I, uh, speaking of things that we've been talking about in Staff Slack, uh, <laughs> Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey are amongst them. I live in Pennsylvania where this is like, you cannot get people to shut up about it because Taylor Swift grew up in mm-hmm. Pennsylvania and the Kelseys are like a Pennsylvania family. Um, so, you know, Travis plays not for a Philly team, but he's, you know, by extension, uh, part of our you know, sports fandom here. And so, yes, nobody will shut up about their, like, romance slash question mark. Like, is it? Who knows? It is. I mean, are they in New Canaan having lunch or are those just scarecrows? Like, the stories are so wild. The headlines are really bananas. They're bananas. They're just bananas. Um, And it cracks me up. So, but obviously, you know, everybody is, like, there are many people who are just captivated by this situation. Um, and I can totally understand, like, we have so many ripped from the headline romances mm-hmm. and erotica, which I think is legit. Like, it is totally fine to be inspired by, you know, a couple in real life or that you saw in other media, right? Like, fan fiction, is you know, thing. memorably turns into, it memorably turns into, you know, record-breaking franchises Mm -hmm. you know it's like that's totally fine and normal however again there's a right way and a wrong way to do it (laughs) and when you stick too close to your source material you come off a little bit creepy which is what happened here so an independent romance author who was swept away i'm sure by the fandom for this Mm -hmm. you know Taylor Swift, Travis Kelsey relationship was like, oh, I wrote, I wrote one for you all. It's, you know, spicy. It involves a pop star princess and a football superstar. And it made a lot of people very uncomfortable. It did. And I think swept away is probably exactly right for what was going on mm-hmm. here. The author's name is Ivy Smoke. Uh, she released this short ebook. She says that it was written in just three days uh, after receiving requests from readers for a spicy mm-hmm. romance inspired by the Taylor Swift, Travis Kelsey situation. But yeah, she she does seem to have gotten swept too far. This also has a like step three profit feeling to me. Yeah, like, and I don't blame her. Yes. I'm sure she had dollar signs mm-hmm. in her eyes. So the book was called "Roughing the the Princess," and I'm using past tense because it has since been pulled from Amazon and yes. wiped from all of Ivy Smoke's social media, except for at the time that this piece we're reading, which is in the New York Times. So like this was a big enough deal that the New York Times book section is covering it, yeah. <laughs> which was a real moment. 
<laughs> Truly, I, that's the part of this that I kind of find a little bit baffling. Like, this is not abnormal. And in fact, AO3, like if you are a fan fiction person, you know, AO3 is full of this. Mm-hmm. Like, this is the most normal thing in the world to find in fan fiction. Like, it's just super normal. What's less normal Right. Is to like publish it and have you you didn't, you know, scrape off the serial numbers enough for it to pass as like, you know, a book that you want to put on Kindle. Yeah. Like that's that's the that's the issue here. Um, Why exactly the New York Times is on top of this, I am guessing, is that they also are trying to. Step three profit from Mm -hmm. the Taylor Swiftiness of the news cycle. Well, and they definitely have reporters that are on the book talk beat now because everybody is talking about TikTok. So I'm sure this came up, but I was really surprised when I came across this headline. So what had happened was that (laughs) that Ivy Smoke. What had happened was (laughs) the book borrowed exact details from their personal biographies, Mm -hmm. from what's publicly known about their relationship, and used direct quotes from Travis Kelsey's interviews and from his podcast. Um, So, right. So this piece in The Times says it ended up reading more like, quote, real person fiction than an inspired by story. Mm -hmm. And according to the fans, it was those real life facts combined with the graphic sex scenes made them feel, made readers feel like, they were ba- violating Travis and Taylor's privacy, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, like, oh, now we've crossed the line. Someone says, like, that's not right. That's gross. Um, this is two real people. And, you know, it, they just felt like they had done something wrong or violating after reading it. So um, I guess I'm glad that they read it before they reacted. That seems yes. like progress yeah. for the internet. Yes, exactly. Well, and I was going to say, this is actually pretty analogous to um, the hockey thing. It's that that one was the other way right, around. Right. Like somebody got really into hockey romance fiction that was loosely based on an actual team, but then they got to, they directed it at the actual real life team mm-hmm. members, which is when it goes too far. And this took, you know, it's just the flip, but it's the same issue, right. really, functionally. It's parasocial relationships are hashtag complicated, <laughs> and we should all be careful about them. <laughs> and I will now cede the microphone for your TED Talk about that. <laughs> oh, my God. It's just true. <laughs> it is. It is true. And I think you've really nailed something there that, like, it's not that this is the romance community. The romance community right. is generally, like, wonderful and thriving and all about empowerment. And I think you see that reflected here, that they are looking for Mm -hmm. and sensitive to what are the boundaries and what is a respectful way to engage in what's functionally literary fantasy um, without about real people without Mm -hmm. you know crossing some kind of moral or ethical line but those parasocial relationships are complex and whether it goes too far in the form of graphic sex scenes about real people that feel too real or just people, you know, thinking that they are really friends with someone that they have Mm -hmm. an online parasocial connection to or attachment to, even though they've never met them. Like weird stuff. The internet makes people do weird stuff. (laughs) It's just true. It's just true. Is the headline. And maybe this is a (laughs) cautionary tale for other authors about the kind of get rich quick possibilities of something like this like it is okay to be inspired by and capitalize on a hot cultural moment um Mm -hmm. but you need to be careful or there will be backlash and like we also know that the internet is good at backlash indeed indeed
It's all true. Oh, I wonder what the next, like, I could not have predicted this. I'm just thinking, like, what is the next no. book talk story that we're going to have to talk about going to be? It will, it will be totally out of left field. Like, it will not be anything you could have come up with on your bingo card. I mean, or at least not us personally. Maybe somebody out there called this in advance and, you know, in their crystal ball of understanding book talk trends. But I got nothing. Yeah, I got nothing. It's, <laughs> it was really surprising. And the, I mean, the New York Times is still covering it. Really amazing. I know. Um, the last thing on our agenda before we talk just a little bit about what we've both been reading lately is a piece by Brooke Warner, who um, is an independent publisher, had had a long career in publishing and now runs uh, a small publishing operation herself. She has a great substack that I've been reading. And she wrote a piece this week called Addicted to Scarcity, Book Publishing's Retail Price Problem. The headline here is that books have only gone up in price $3. And she's talking about hardcovers um, in the last 30 years, that in 1991, an average hardcover was retailing for $24.95. And here in 2023, an average hardcover is re retailing for $27. That's a like 8% cost increase over 30 years. Inflation is about 115% uh, in that mm. same time period. So if the cost of hardcover books had kept up with inflation, a hardcover would be like $53 right now. Mm. That does not seem tenable. Brooke Warner makes the comparison here to the average cost of movie tickets. And in the same 30-year period, the average movie ticket has gone from $4.21 to $17. That's a like four and a half times increase, mm -hmm. which is very significant. And that would make a hardcover book $100. <laughs> so she's arguing in this piece like th that this $3 increase over 30 years is not good enough. It's not sustainable that publishing does not, her argument is publishing does not value the work that writers and artists are doing enough or appropriately. And that this lends itself to an ongoing culture of scarcity inside publishing and th that just feeds itself. There's this assumption that yeah. there's only so much to go around and that, you know, you can only assume that your work is so valuable it's a really interesting piece. And the upshot is books should cost more. The question she doesn't answer is how much should they cost? Yeah. And I was writing about this for Today in Books, and I wrote like four paragraphs trying to think my <laughs> way through how do we answer this question. And I couldn't land like I just deleted all of those paragraphs. I couldn't land in yeah. a good place. But as I thought out loud with myself about it, I was like, okay, well, this $53 for a hardcover that inflation would get us to, mm -hmm. like that does not seem tenable uh, given a, like a today's economic market, you know, like yeah. in this economy. Um, right, exactly. But a $3 increase over 30 years also seems clearly like right. not That's enough. Right. And maybe part of my reaction to the $53 price tag is just because I'm used to hardcovers costing mm -hmm. $25, $26, $27, where like if I anchored it in Warner's math and we thought about movie tickets, like my ticket to go see Killers of the Flower Moon is going to be twelve fifty at my theater down right. the street. And that's going to get me three and a half hours of entertainment, which right. like that's an right. outsized value per hour because it's such a long movie. But even if I saw a typical two hour movie, we're talking about like yeah. six bucks an hour. Right. If an average hardcover is 300 pages and that takes me about five hours to read, that would be 
$30 at the six bucks an hour. Like that seems about right. I was like, okay, but we can't value books just at like the amount of time, like right, a, exactly. a cost per hour. Yeah. There's production costs. There's all kinds of things. I could not land in any place that was not just feelings of like, what would I agree would be a reasonable cost for a new hardcover book today? And my, I don't know, my spidey sense says like, we need to be somewhere probably around 35. Yeah. But I don't know. How did you, how are you thinking about this as you were reading this piece this week? Yeah. Me. I mean, I, uh, well, <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to be much help. Honestly, I read this piece. I, it was hard for me to disagree with anything Warner was saying. Like, mm -hmm, I'm like, yep, mm -hmm. yep. All seems deeply correct. The math seems right there. Um, I mean, the math seems wrong in the way yeah. that Warner is pointing out. Uh, and... I also know that, you know, books have gone up in price. Um, granted, not a lot. But uh, in this economy, <laughs> people are literally, like, especially teens, like YA books. Oh, YA books, I know books, that yeah. Kelly had talked about this recently somewhere. Um, cost a lot more now than they used to. And you are pricing teenagers out of access to the books, right? Um, and, and... You know, there's already plenty of folks who cannot afford a hardcover at $30. So 35 you know, I think that there are some interesting questions to be asked about the ways that books get made. Mm. And Warner touches on this because, as you know, as pointed out in the article, really where the big savings come in is when you can print a ton of a book. But that doesn't happen for small presses and that doesn't happen for smaller authors. You know, you don't get a big print run. So that means your book costs more than, you know, Stephen's King, Stephen King's book. Um, but also, why aren't we doing more in mass market? Why aren't yeah. we doing more paperback originals? Like, why aren't we finding ways to print more affordable books? Like, does everything need a deckled edge? No, it does not. <laughs> and I, that's an, it's an extreme example. But like... I, you know, spreads are great. I don't see any reason why one book couldn't have more affordable versions as well as a really fancy version. I agree. I think that's a really great question to ask about this. And it's something I'd like to see publishing explorers like the hardcover seems to increasingly be a luxury yes. item. And if you don't want to pay 30 bucks for a hardcover mm -hmm. most of us have access to some way to read ebooks like most folks yes. who are reading report that they've read an electronic book in the last year mm -hmm. so they're if they're not doing it on like a dedicated kindle or an ipad they're doing it on their phones almost everybody's yep. walking around with this little magical computer in their pockets right. <laughs> so i think i feel okay about adult hardcovers continuing to be a luxury item because there's other ways to access the same yes. content and information that are less expensive and more you know not to mention environmentally friendly let's make ebooks friends yes. yeah yeah. Well, I mean, server farms true. are not great that's either, true. but you know, yeah. it, you can't win that. That's game, true. The way that it's, you just can't win it. Yeah. The, so <laughs> the YA titles and like kids' titles and the access issues that that pre presents, I think, are an especially important piece of this. But if we stick like exclusively to adult titles, right. I would love to see a publisher experiment with dropping 
like a hardcover and a paperback at the same time and let the folks who yeah. want the luxury item have it or shorten the, the distance between the hardcover yeah. and paperback release down to like three months. So if you're willing to pay the premium because you want your new Adam Grant book on the day it comes out, right. fine. But, you know, most folks are not paying attention to new release lists the way that we get paid <laughs> to pay attention yeah. to new right. release lists. And a three month gap would be fine for them like of course publishers make the highest margin on hardcovers so Mm -hmm. they Mm -hmm. have a disincentive to make hardcovers less appealing or to offer an alternative to them sooner Mm -hmm. but being a writer is economically very difficult if not entirely unsustainable on its own yes most writers do have to have day jobs to support their work and I knew this, like we know this working in this industry, Mm -hmm. but seeing it put alongside the price increases of some other popular form of entertainment like movie tickets Mm -hmm. and how we've absorbed that. Like no one loves shelling out 15 bucks to go see a movie. Well, but you do it. (laughs) Yeah, but also the actors are not getting that money either, which is why SAG-AFTRA is still on strike right now. Like, let's be clear here, just because things cost more doesn't mean the profits get distributed evenly so there are multiple layers of problems (laughs) to be solved here um and not for nothing publishing probably could afford to pay people better right now if certain other things were different Mm -hmm. so you know i am not an economist nor am i (laughs) you know a coo and i don't know the exact details but i feel confident that redistribution of profits in a more equitable way is possible right now, even without going up to $35 for a hardcover, which also probably should happen. Like, there's so many mm-hmm. different angles on this. Um, but I do want to just say that it's not inevitable that when the price of something goes up, that right. means that people who that creatives get paid more fairly. Like, that's not necessarily a one to one relationship. Yeah, so That's a great point. I would love to hear somebody who does this work inside a publisher talk about it. This is not something that I have like a lot of confidence we're going to ever get the the transparency on. But I feel like I'm seeing, I mean, maybe some of it is just what's like availability bias for me, but I feel like I'm seeing some shifts here. Like my new Adam Grant hardcover was $32. The hardcover Mm -hmm. of the Abraham Verghese, like huge book this summer was I think $37. Yeah. And so there are some places where the hardcovers are going up. But my new Jasmine Ward, I believe, was 27 list price. Mm-hmm. I want to know how they're making that decision. Was it like, well, the Adam oh. Grant crowd is businessy and like... It's it's nonfiction. Oh, I, I mean, nonfiction. Yeah. I, we saw this with TBR, actually. We're looking at it across the board for TBR margin. Um, yeah, t- nonfiction now routinely above $30, whereas literary fiction still tends to be right around 28 So if you are buying, and it's exactly that reason, business books or books that can be feasibly marketed towards business executives and uh, the corresponding services um, don't tend to suffer or slump during recessions because people find ways to justify it for work. They write it off as a Mm -hmm. business expense. They are much more protected from the vagaries of economic forces than like literary fiction per se. So there's it's exactly right. The nonfiction is what goes up, whereas literary fiction trails behind. Also, I do want to point out, I think it's Macmillan has been 
doing simultaneous releases of paperback and hardcovers, at the very least with some of the graphic novel imprints, oh, like for second, yeah. has been doing it for like a decade, probably a long time. Um, and I know that some of their other books are published that way. Also, romance, mm -hmm. uh, you know, always on the forefront, has done simultaneously releases, simultaneous releases for lots of things. I mean, you know, when when Nora Roberts puts out a new book, you can get it in hardcover. You can probably get it in trade paperback. You can probably get it in mass market. You can get it in audio. You can get it in me. Like it's available all of the ways that you might possibly want to get it. And for something that popular, like Nora Roberts level, yes. they can do that because they can print each copy at scale and know they're going to sell them or each, That's right. each format. That's right. um, it's much more complicated if you're right. thinking you're only going to sell 2,000. But, you know, it's it is tangly. You're right. We're not going to solve this today. Probably <laughs> nope. we're not going to solve it tomorrow either. <laughs> but this was really good food for thought. And even just trying to write four paragraphs about it and not being able to land at any kind of solid idea for myself was a helpful exercise in just remembering how complex mm. this is. And since, you know, we were just talking about how the internet can make things weird. One of the things that social media does and that, you know, the capital D discourse does is really flatten the conversation down to like, yes. publishing is broken, everyone needs more money, the end. And that may be mm. true, but it's not the whole truth. It's not a fleshed out nuanced discussion of the truth. And that like, you're, you're for slide carousel on Instagram <laughs> does not address the the full complexity of this. And I would like to see more discussion that propagates deeper thinking about really how tricky all of this is. Um, so folks, yeah. this link, like everything else, will be in the show notes if you want to get just as tangled up as Jen and I are about how much we should be paying <laughs> for books. If you have any genius ideas, you can also email us at podcast at bookriot.com and tell us how you would solve this problem. You get to be COO for a day. That's right. Um, Jen, before I let you go and dive in, my front list foyer this week is just that I have spent every <laughs> spare minute listening to the Britney Spears memoir, and I'm about to talk about it in great depth. So what have you been reading this week? Well, I'm so happy for you, and I cannot <laughs> wait to listen. Um, I am having a very good front list week because I pre-ordered this book. This is like the gift that keeps giving. I pre-order a book, and then I forget yes, about it, right? And then it shows up in my e-reader, and I'm like, oh, it's today. A little gift from um, past you. <laughs> a gift from past me. So one of my favorite space opera series is, um, is the Shuya Universe by Elliot de Bedard. It's basically like imagine that the Vietnamese like got into space early on. On and now are like have a galactic empire. Uh, it's great. And um, the newest book, A Fire Born of Exile, was pitched as like a sapphic space Count of Monte Cristo. And there could not be a combination of words more designed to like get my attention. <laughs> like <laughs> I reread The Count of Monte Cristo regularly. Um, I love space and I love seeing, you know, these new, like expansive, inclusive looks at who gets to be in space and what stories we get to tell about mm -hmm. them. So I have started it. I am really enjoying it, although I will say that it is possible to be too familiar with source material and have it inhibit your enjoyment of a remix. Because Bedard is doing a remix for sure. And I realized I have to turn off the part of my brain that's trying to map the characters onto each other and just like let it be mm. 
it is it's so good i just have to let it be what it is and i am going to do that but i i i realized i had to turn off that part of my brain well it sounds wonderful it's great it's i great. love highly that for you i know it's good we're all we're having a good book week if nothing else it's true we are the world is a dumpster fire but we are getting yeah. by with britney and space operas and you know that's right i feel <laughs> just fine about that as a coping mechanism listen you gotta do what you gotta do thank you so much for joining me this week jen listeners hang out and you can talk britney with me and kelly we'll be right back all right friends welcome back as promised, I am here with my intrepid colleague and, I don't know, partner in crime and pop culture, mm. Kelly Jensen. Kelly, you might be the only person who was more excited about the Britney Spears memoir than I was. Uh, so Possibly. And also, <laughs> it's, it's odd because I am not like a pop culture person at all, um, unless it is like late 90s, early 2000s mm -hmm. pop culture. And right. We have had just a, a wealth of memoirs from people of that era. So um, this may have been the one I was most looking forward to. Yeah, the celebrity memoir, especially from that era, does seem to be one of your wheelhouses. So I'm really glad that you're here with me today. Do you want to talk a little bit about why we were so looking forward to this before we get started? What were you thinking when this book got announced? Um, well, I was thinking a whole lot of things, but like the biggest one is that this is the first time that we are hearing from Britney Spears in a way that shares her story in her own voice. Mm -hmm. And we're going to get into this, I'm sure more as we talk about it. But most of the work you've ever read about her or her history or her family or what has happened to her has been from an outsider perspective. It has not come from her own voice. And the pieces that we see of her through social media are so interesting because mm -hmm. I think they are very authentically her. And I think that because she has not shared her story through her own voice, People are quick to call her every name that she's been called before for some of what she does on social media. Um, meanwhile, anybody who knows anything about her or uh, cares about her or her work or, you know, anything of that matter is like she's just being herself. And this is the first freedom she has had in her life. And she is a middle-aged woman. This is a little fact I always like to bring up. She's middle-aged. Mm -hmm. um, and this is her first taste of freedom. So, yeah, it's going to be weird. Yeah, Brittany is one year, just like almost exactly one year older than me. So we're like all here together <laughs> in our middle-agedness. Mm -hmm. And thinking about that, about how, you know, like uh, none of us knew anything about what she was suffering through until the last couple of years when she was able to get out from under the conservatorship that her family had had for 13 years. Yep. And I am not quite done with the audiobook. I'm right at the part where she's starting to fight the conservatorship. Mm -hmm. I have about an hour of the five and a half hours left. Um, but she knows like for 13 years, her father, who was the conservator, was in control of everything about her life down to what she ate. Like she could not get French fries when she wanted them. A, a woman in her mid thirties who made the millions of dollars. She yeah. couldn't go to the bathroom without it being monitored. Like that is yeah. mind boggling to me to think about. 
And right, if she's acting a little weird or in ways that we don't understand on social media, we're seeing a person who is making up for decades of life that she didn't get to live for herself with any kind of autonomy. Um, this, yeah. I think this book as a social document is really fascinating. Like I know much more about Brittany the person, or I guess I'm much more invested in Brittany the person than in Brittany the pop star. Her music mm-hmm. like wasn't mm-hmm. particularly formative to me other than if you were a teenager and young adult in the late 90s and early 2000s like you and I both were. It was just in the water. Britney Spears was everywhere. You can't help but know all the words to the, the songs that were on the radio. Um, but hearing over the last several years about what was done to her and how she was treated when she was the one making her family millions and millions of dollars, everyone's life and livelihood depended on her continuing to perform and to have you know, a good career that she was able to make decisions about, but having no control and no autonomy in her life. It just really jaw dropping. And you made a great point, I think on Instagram that like 10 years later, this story would likely have been very different because when Britney Spears became a public figure, social media was not a thing. Yet mm-hmm. she didn't have a way to express herself or have any kind of voice or even, you know, like try to represent herself in a way that was individualized and not a product of really her father's control. And I thought that was such an astute point. I'd love it if you talk about that a little more. Yeah, I, I want to talk about something you brought up before I get to that part. And that's, um, you know, for anybody who doesn't know, Brittany was under conservatorship of her father for 13 years. And her father is a really troubling figure and has been his entire life. He was a football star in small town, Louisiana, growing up. And his father was um, not a great guy either. Mm-hmm. His father... in. Uh, had been married several times and had also put away several women into institutions for their mental health. So this has been a trend in this family where there are this uh, there's this controlling male figure who does what he can to have authority over a woman and take away her autonomy. It's it's run through the family, right? So mm-hmm. that is. Um, kind of, I think, a big piece to contextualize a lot of her story within. Um, for a long time, the there was a lawyer involved in this as well. Now, she managed to get out from under the lawyer piece of it more easily than that of her father, despite her father um, having many mental health issues himself and being part of this lineage of... Um, Control, I guess, is the best way to put it. I think that's right. A lineage of control, a real story. She doesn't quite use the language of generational trauma and patterns Mm -hmm. of generational trauma, but that certainly is happening all the way up and down both sides of her family tree. Mm -hmm. Um, They call her family calls in the SWAT team a couple of times when she Mm -hmm. has not done anything illegal and then they institute this conservatorship and in my notes it was like oh yeah that's a move he did learn from his dad Mm -hmm. because as you said his father put away multiple wives in the town uh mental health mental institution uh ostensibly for their own protection but we all know what that story is really like um and there's you know alcohol abuse there's addiction on both sides um Mm -hmm. 
when she was 13, Brittany's mom was like driving her around and they were all sipping on white Russians in the car. Mm-hmm. At other points at that same age, Brittany is driving. The family mm-hmm. has a terrible accident. There's, it's just an astonishing amount of stuff that happened to her. And you know that an astonishing amount of stuff happened to her, but the specificity of it is really horrifying down to like, when she's 13, a friend's older boyfriend or older brother sneaks into the house where she's having a sleepover and she has a huge crush on him. So she's really excited. But again, she's 13 and he's 18 and they make out like nothing further happens. But this is the most like and here, please hear the scare quotes in my voice. But that is the most normal and least troubling mm-hmm. of the things that mm-hmm. ha- happened to her just as a young person. But then she becomes famous and everyone in her life cashes in except for her. Bingo. And so I wanted to like bring that piece of the conversation in to come back to your original question Mm -hmm. about social media. So Britney Spears and Taylor Swift are 10 years apart in Mm -hmm. age. Um, And I've, I've done so much thinking about that in particular because their stories are so different, and that's not they to really downplay are. like the challenges that Taylor Swift has had. Th- those are real, too. But um, they came from very different backgrounds, uh, very different economic classes, very different levels of privilege. And mm-hmm. also, they had access to different uh, you know, tools. So Brittany never got to tell her story because she didn't have a way to tell her story. It was right, always told right. through the perspective of the paparazzi or through the perspective of the tabloids. Or periodically you might get an interview. Um, but you look at somebody like Taylor Swift who started coming of age when social media started to grow too. And she was very engaged with her fans and very engaged in these tools that allowed her to share her story through mm-hmm. her voice in a way that Britney never got to do. And I think that there's something really powerful in thinking about just that 10-year difference yes. and that difference in the tools of communication and where and how that really allowed them or didn't allow them, in Brittany's case, to uh, share their story, to like tell their truth in a way that came from them. Um, even if it's through you know whoever does their social media, it's still uh, a way to connect with fans, a way to connect with the broader world as opposed to only having it told through this guy who made a million dollars getting this one picture. Yeah. And the, I think you just can't possibly put enough emphasis on this. That like the night that Brittany made huge tabloid stories, but when she went into a salon and shaved her head and like, mm-hmm. I remember this, I'm sure yep. you remember this oh, yeah. too, that it was all over the media that like Brittany has lost it. She has gone crazy. She's out of control. What's going on? That's 2006. That is two years before the iPhone exists. And how much that two year, even just that two year difference in technology impacted the ways that celebrities could access a voice, could access direct contact with their fans. We really can't underemphasize that. You know, I just recently read Extremely Online by Taylor Lawrence. And mm-hmm. one of the things that she spends a lot of time on, especially as Twitter becomes a thing in like late 2008 when it was really building steam, was we all had iPhones or folks had iPhones then. You could have an iPhone and you could have Twitter on it. Mm-hmm. And celebrities were 
routinely freaking out their publicists by (laughs) making all kinds of statements and just being themselves. And a lot of it was the kind of stuff that a publicist would not approve of or appreciate. And -hmm. now this is just it's much more mainstream. Celebrities are tweeting. They they do continue to routinely get in trouble because people are complicated and they say things. But Britney didn't have any access to that. And then when social media became big and developed was during a time where her family as conservators would not allow her to have a cell phone. She would get Mm -hmm. burners and use them in secret and inevitably get caught. So she could not like set up an Instagram account for herself or find a way to reach out to people. The Taylor Swift comparison, I I just think is incredibly apt. And the difference also in how the media treated them. And I think a lot of this comes back to their families. I don't know a Mm -hmm. whole lot about Taylor Swift's family background, but I think we share the impression that what's going on with the Swifts is more wholesome and supportive than what was happening with Britney. I think, I think also it's, it's, uh, they are more upper middle class and more mm -hmm. professionally oriented, but I also think that they are, um, much better at keeping it kind of secretive and staying out of yeah. the media. Yes. Uh, which <laughs> Britney's family loved the media. They did. Yeah. Her mom was writing books and going on talk shows, talking about all kinds of horrible things at the same time that Britney is having a, what got depicted as a nervous breakdown, but was having a terrible postpartum depression mm-hmm. episode that was largely induced by her husband at the time, Kevin Federline, taking her very small children away from her. We're talking about like a five-month-old baby that mm-hmm. she was not allowed to see and didn't know how long it was going to be before she was allowed to see them. And that Federline and her parents had made these decisions on all based on all kinds of lies that they had invented about her. Um, and they presented as like, we're doing this for your own good, but there's no way to take that as legit when all of them are making money on her back and she's getting none of it. And she does like, I think that Britney Spears was incredibly generous in this memoir. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. I would not want to be Justin Timberlake, who now we now know he comforted her after the abortion that he talked her into getting by playing his guitar while she is like writhing on the floor in pain. Um, he doesn't look good, but he could look a lot worse. Um, yeah. Every man named in this book should be grateful that she did not say more. And there are several places where she says, like, she tells a story, but she declines to give any names or identifying features because she wants to respect who that person in the story has become, or she at least doesn't want to disrupt their life now. And like, she does not have to do that. This could have been a full out name names memoir, and she would have been really justified in doing it. I think there are a couple of things that come up when you talk about this and you think about the memoir in general. Um, First, I think that she is far classier than anybody gives Mm -hmm. her credit for. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that is rooted in the fact that she has been through all of this and she has seen what it is to be, you know, not given the opportunity to tell her story. And at the end of the day, this is her story. And so she tells it the way that she feels best represents her and who she is. Um, we get the sense that, you know, she is kind of goofy. And she is. Mm-hmm. Like, we've known mm-hmm. this forever, right? <laughs> and she she's very, she owns that and she talks yep. about that in the, and, and, you know, it's a particularly interesting passage where she talks about this with um, the now going to be third ex-husband, um, yes. Sam, I don't remember his last name off the top of my head, but um, 
you know, she she talks about she was making this TikTok video or this Instagram mm-hmm. reel, and she found this funny baby sound, and she was like, isn't this funny? Like, I'm going to use this for such and such. And he's like, no, that's dumb. So she didn't do it. And then she talks in the book about how sad she was. She, like, didn't trust her own instinct to be weird and, and yeah. like, lean into it. And, you know, you think about that stuff, and you think, okay, I think she's presenting the the story that she feels is right um, mm-hmm. and doesn't want to hurt people because she's been a hurt person. I don't yes, think that, yes. you know, at the end of the day, her goal is to inflict more hurt um, when, I don't know, feels like she could have done that. And totally, you know, it, it would have been fine. <laughs> like it would have been within her right to yeah. do that. You had said, uh, like, in all caps, she has had therapy. And I think that has to be true. (laughs) And, like, good therapy to be able to process all of this. So speaking of therapy, um, (laughs) (laughs) that was the very first thought I had when I was reading this. And then the second thought I had was um, last year at this time, I was – so I'm in a clinical master – master's of clinical mental health counseling program right now. And Mm -hmm. I'm wrapping up my second year. And last year at the end of the year, I was in a class that was advanced human development and something, something. And so one of the assignments that we had to do was pick a celebrity and write this developmental assessment of them. And it had to be somebody who like had a lot of stuff about them. So Mm -hmm. I thought Britney Spears, perfect. There's a lot of (laughs) stuff about her, you know, and, um, so listening to this, I was like, oh, yes, I remember reading that. I remember reading that, you know. Um, but one of the things that I thought about and continued to think about through this audiobook was we had to make some, like, recommendations for how we could help them or mm-hmm. what goals they should work on in therapy based on where they're at. And one of the things that I said is that Brittany needs to learn how to um, goal set because she has not been allowed to set her own goals. And I think that she is a goal-driven person. But when you have been subject to other people's demands, you don't know how to figure out what your goals are. Um, yeah. And it, it was particularly interesting to listen to her talk about like the Vegas residency, which mm-hmm. for any artist is a huge goal to have because yes, that's a guaranteed deal. show, you know? And 900,000 talk- tickets that she right, sold. Right. But she talks about like that wasn't, she wasn't happy. Like this was not a thing she loved yeah. doing and not because she doesn't like to perform, but because she couldn't be herself in it. And she did not want to give performances to her fans that she did not feel was her best. And, you know, you start thinking about that and you're like, wow, you are, you know, 43 years old and now you have to learn how to set a goal and how to achieve that goal. And where do you even start? It's it's just one of the like many illustrations of the impossible trap that she was placed in and that so Mm -hmm. many women were placed in by the media in this particular time, like in the Mm -hmm. late 90s when Britney was becoming popular. Purity culture is rampant. If you were too young at the time to to know, like it was just routine for celebrities to be pressured to be like, oh, yes, I'm saving myself for marriage. Like this was Mm -hmm. the thing you had to do. She had to be 
you know, a sex symbol and exude sex appeal and wear her crop tops and her tight pants. But then she also had to be chastised for doing those things because she was supposed to be a role model, which is a thing she had never signed up for. But that was the position that the public took at the time was you are in front of a lot of young people who watch your music. You need to be a role model for them. But also, like, look at all these old men in the audience who want to leer at you while you dance. And that this is an impossible situation for any young woman to navigate or to yeah, to navigate at all. It's an impossible situation for women in the world, period. But Britney had it dialed up to like 47. You know, that there's no way she can please people on all sides. She has to lie about who she really is and like hold back the the delightful weirdness that you're talking <laughs> about. All of that gets tamped down. And anytime that she would try to express herself, her family would recognize that they were losing control of her or she might become uncontrollable. Mm-hmm. And if that happened, then maybe they would lose access to the money train. So as she, you know, did grow up and started reaching for ways to be individual and to have autonomy, her family escalated, like really, really escalated the ways that they sought control of her, the ways that they isolated her. And she did this thing that like, that I have seen people do in my real life that I think we watch people do where she's come up with terrible relationships in her family and poor examples of what love and connection are. And so she falls for these guys that seem like they care for her. And in retrospect, she recognizes that they were that they knew exactly what they were doing. She says this of Justin Timberlake and Kevin Federline, like, I, I realize now they knew exactly what they were doing. And she had no clue at the time because she was not a manipulative person. She says, I wasn't manipulative. I was just stupid. I was too Mm -hmm. innocent to realize what was happening. And everybody was profiting on that while asking her to both continue behaving as though she's sweet and innocent and also being like the teen sex idol of the late 90s. I was really taken with a section of the book where she talks about artistry and she talks Mm -hmm. about the kind of work that she's been really proud of. Um, She says that the Blackout album is her favorite one that she's done. So I went and listened to it, um, most of it, yesterday. It is powerful. If you listen to that, I think it's track two or three. It's this whole story that's, like, basically her story of, Mm -hmm. you know, the challenges of being the sex symbol but not being too sexy the challenges of being a woman when you are both you know perceived one way but looked at another way and then packaged and sold another way um and you you hear her talking about it you're like man she didn't even have control of her own art and Mm -hmm. the art that she's proud of is the the art that didn't quite hit the same way that the stuff other people controlled did and yet it was the more I don't want to say more, but it was it was quite personal stuff that was yeah, coming authentic. Up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, it's. I also was thinking a lot about she talks about Paris Hilton being one of her mm-hmm. good friends at the time. And um, I think I'm one of the few people uh, who was also stoked. Paris Hilton had a memoir out this year and I listened to that Um did you get a chance to read that one? I, I did not, but I avidly watched your coverage of it. <laughs> so it talks a lot about the troubled teen industry because that's like Paris's big passion project. Mm-hmm. And um, 
Brittany says something of Paris that like my takeaway from Paris's memoir was and that's you know so many people saw her as this dumb blonde rich girl and like yeah she's a rich girl she's not denying that nobody's denying that but she's also a very smart businesswoman and that's why she has continued to have this level of success and one of the things I said to you is I think Brittany is very very smart I think Mm -hmm. that she is smarter than anybody has ever given her credit for oh for sure and you know, as much as there are passages in this book that are very funny, and I'm sure you're going to talk about um, some of them, <laughs> you know, at the same time, like, it's smart she did this. It's smart how she did this. Yes. Um, and you start picking out the pieces and you're like, you know what? She is very, very smart and talented. We have just been sold a lie about her that, mm-hmm. you know, when you look at somebody, I'm going to go back to Taylor Swift and it's not to like drag her or anything, but rather to say like she's the biggest pop star of the moment. So she yep. is very comparable to where Britney was um, at her height. You know, like uh, people acknowledge how smart Taylor Swift is. Uh, why did we not do the same thing with Britney Spears? Yeah, it's a real contrast that I think sheds a lot of light on how much media has changed in the Mm -hmm. last 20 years and really how much our social conversation has changed about media and about fame Mm -hmm. and what we expect of pop stars and famous people in general. Um, We do have a few minutes left, so we should talk about the audiobook production itself. Um, It was narrated by Michelle Williams uh, because Brittany did not want to read these very traumatic passages and go through all of that again. Brittany does read a short introduction, and it was really nice to hear her voice Mm -hmm. there. Um, It's... I I don't know. I have not fully processed my feelings about Michelle Williams narrating this audiobook. Like Michelle Williams is wonderful. She's you know one of the best actresses of her generation. There are moments where she slips into like an almost southern accent. <laughs> yeah. There are moments where you can hear how seriously she's taking it, how much she really is on Britney's side. And there is also a glorious moment that I teased at the top of the show talking with Jen, where Brittany is describing being on the street uh, with Justin Timberlake when he greets Genuine. And like, I am just never going to recover from hearing <laughs> Michelle Williams go, oh, yeah, fauches, fauches. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know you have some quibbles with the audiobook production. Yeah, I thought that the audio pr- the production uh, was not very good. There were a lot of places where the sound quality shifts and you can really tell uh between chapters when it happens you can tell that there were like recording breaks sometimes it's louder sometimes it's quieter and these are things like the average listener is not going to notice but as somebody who did uh several years of audiobook award committees like I'm listening going whoo they rushed to production yeah but also we didn't know that Michelle Williams was going to be the performer until about a month ago if Mm -hmm. even that long ago so it starts to um make a little bit more sense why production maybe is not so great in that perhaps they thought Britney was going to do it and then she just couldn't um yeah and I think it and was so, just like two weeks ago that the Michelle Williams news yeah. broke so you know it could be a very that they had to do it very fast and um so it it makes sense like I don't think that anybody's going to be like man I'm really disappointed I listened to the audiobook but um this is not going to be an award-winning audiobook <laughs> Yeah, I hope, I guess my dream for it is that like maybe they do a remastered edition of it at some point or like a mm. deluxe edition where they could take full advantage of the audio format and like 
put in some clips of some of her songs Mm -hmm. it would be cool to hear like what are the pieces from this blackout album that she's really proud of or some of those things um i know somebody in our contributor slack was saying that they wish that the hardcover had photos in -hmm. it that often celebrity memoirs have pictures from the thing and like no one is more googleable than britney spears but putting (laughs) the photos into the book can sometimes make a difference for the experience maybe they'll like get further down the line and, and flesh it out a little bit more um kelly any final thoughts about this before we wrap up um i was just thinking about um a song that i was going to recommend to people and it's not mm. a pretty spear song it's um purge the poison by marina is is the song and the artist and um i feel like this song so perfectly encapsulates this period of pop culture um and there's a there's a mm. shout out to britney in it which is what made me think about it because okay. she talks in this song about our perceptions of people and how they were warped by the media and how Britney shaved her head and all we did was call her crazy is the line. Mm. And it's like one of those things that gives you the chills, like the more you think about it. And then when you hear Britney tell the story of why she did that, you're like, wow, um, this is how we treat women in society. This is how we treat women who are in pain in society. This is how we, you know, perceive of them. We don't take their pain seriously. We mock them. And then they have to go to these extents to get any kind of help. And Mm -hmm. when that help is called in, it's not really what they need. You know, the state of California came in and she didn't get the mental health that she needed. She got conservatorship, which probably did more damage to her mental health than anything else. Yeah, it's I will put the link in the show notes to that song. So thank you for mentioning it. I think I think this book is going to end up being a really important cultural document about Mm -hmm. a person who is very significant to late 90s and early 2000s culture and who, as we've both been saying here, is a real symbol and extreme illustration of some of the things that can happen to women that are that are done to women very actively um, by the media, by the music industry and by a, a kind of fame that no one could ever be prepared. Like no one is wired to just be mm-hmm. able to roll through that experience. I'm so glad that she got to tell this story in her own words. And I think you're right. It does feel very authentic to her. Like it's serious mm-hmm. and goofy and honest and not mean. She could have been so much meaner. Oh, yeah. It's a thing I think about. Like, <laughs> yeah, I've just been thinking that the last couple days. It really could have been so mean. And it's not mean at all. Even to her parents who were awful to her. When she, t- when she talks about these stories, both with her father and with her mother, it's very factual. Um, and... Yeah, we get her feelings about it, but she doesn't like pass a judgment on it in a way Mm -hmm. that I feel like she had every right to. Oh, totally. It's a really nice job of showing, not telling. Like these Mm -hmm. actions that her parents especially took speak for themselves and we can all make our determinations about what that means. Um, Kelly, thank you for being here, being our pop culture correspondent (laughs) with me today. (laughs) Probably the one and only time I can take that title is with Britney Spears. (laughs) You got to go big for your one time. (laughs) All right. Thanks again. Listeners, you can find links to everything that Jen and I talked about in the top of the show and the uh, Michelle, there's a clip of Michelle Williams. We'll link to that (laughs) and also to the song that Kelly recommended at bookriot.com slash listen. Subscribe to the Patreon to hear me and Jeff book clubbing our way through the fall at patreon.com slash bookriotpodcast. And as always, you can email us at podcast at bookriot.com. Kelly, thanks so much. Thanks for having me.